Welcome to our podcast. This teaching is a part of our Sunday morning service at Garden City Church in Southern California. For more information about our church, visit GardenCityChurch.co. So you can have a seat to grab your Bible to open to Luke chapter 10. And then if you are able this morning, you can stand for the reading of Scripture. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I'll wait for you guys to to turn there. If you guys didn't bring a Bible and you need one, we have some. If you don't want one, that's fine. It's on the screen. We have all the opportunities for you to read. This morning, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, that's no surprise, right? Like, Lawyers are always putting people to the test, and of course, believers, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of God. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Now, I've done my fair share of Q&As over the years, a time of question and answer, whether it's a midweek or through youth programs or uh, debates that I've hosted on college campuses. I've held forums with atheists and and apologists alike, and I've hosted and answered questions from adults all the way down to kids' ministry. And the youth ministry questions are, of course, the most bizarre, especially when you give them a Uh, a phone number to text in their question. They'll send you all kinds of weird and bizarre questions. But some of them are as follows. The first question primarily that pops up all the time is the question, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Now that's a question you got to consider, being that they weren't born, okay? Like that's a really weird Andromeda sort of something or other Um, The question, of course, as my kids are asking me still, how did the dinosaurs die? Like, and people say, well, the Noah's flood probably killed them, whatever. Like, well, why wasn't T-Rex in the boat? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, Another question is, how hot do you think it will actually be in hell? Like, has Satan turned the thermostat all the way up? Like, how hot is it going to actually be? 
Um, another one that is very common, even with adults, can you be a Christian and have tattoos? Now, if that, weren't, if that were the case, then I'd be destined for hell, as would some of you. Uh, another question they ask is, uh, how sharp are Satan's horns? So that's just a whole other thing, because obviously from cartoons, they're getting this preconceived idea that Satan is red, pitchfork, and the tail and the horns and things like that. So it's funny, though, because you can tell when someone genuinely wants an answer to their question based solely on the question itself. And there are routine questions you can typically assume will be asked on a panel, was the world created in a literal six days? If God is so good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Did Jesus rise again on the third day or three days later? On one occasion, uh, there's a story that goes about Martin Luther, who was approached by some hostile uh, person to Christianity, skeptical of all things surrounding God and the supernatural, and he asked Martin Luther this question, what was God doing before he created the world? Now, some of us inquiring minds truly want to know, yeah, what was God doing before the foundation of the world? And I don't know if that's necessarily important to our faith and to salvation, but Martin Luther replied bluntly, he was making hell for people like you who ask stupid questions like that. Now, listen, I don't know if I agree with that answer necessarily, given the hostility that Martin Luther gave back to him. And so please don't ask me what my answer would be, but I would never be so bold to respond like that. Um, But we know oftentimes when it comes to faith, when it comes to following Jesus, there is a difference between a genuine seeker and a hostile observer. There's someone whose curiosity has brought them to a place where they're trying to figure out this whole thing called following Jesus. And then there are people who are like, well, I have no intention of ever following Jesus, so I'm going to make this opportunity the best that I have to come in between God and his people. And so the question for us in this encounter between Jesus and the lawyer is, which one is the lawyer? Is he a genuine seeker? Or is he a hostile observer? Is he genuinely searching for answers to life's questions? Or is he in complete opposition to Jesus and looking for a way to lawyer Jesus into a corner and leave everyone speechless by his intellect? Luke gives us the answer in verses 25 and 29. He says, he stood up to put him to the test. And that Greek word test simply just means to test someone's knowledge. This guy, this lawyer, as we know it, is someone, obviously, who has an understanding of the law. And so, therefore, he knows the answer to the question he's already asking. Verse 29 even says that he went to justify himself even further by asking, who is my neighbor? And so his motive may have been clouded to us because he respectfully, if you look at verse 25 or 26, he says, "Um, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's using a respectful term between himself and Jesus, but he's also using a term that he would have been familiar with himself. Being that he's a lawyer, he was also someone who was teaching the law in the temple as well. Teachers were highly respected individuals in this culture, and of course, we can speculate a sense of sarcasm from the lawyer, but he is asking the right question which is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We've seen that question asked by multiple people through scripture, the rich young ruler, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus tells him, sell all, all that you have, give to the poor and follow me. But he's asking with the wrong motive. And so this question is a deeply profound one. It's the right question to ask for sure. And it may even be the question that you've come to know Christ through in the beginning of your relationship. And it may be a question you've been asked recently by a family member or coworker. So if there is eternal life to be discovered, how am I supposed to discover it? You may even be startled that you yourself have asked this question even recently. I don't know that I'm all of a sudden asking this question, but I sense that there's this hole in my soul where I'm not sure why I haven't noticed it until now. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The word eternity in the book of Ecclesiastes is the Hebrew word olam, which refers to God's placing of a longing or a sense of eternity in the human heart. This verse provides further support for the notion that human behavior differs significantly from that of other types of life. Humans are given an awareness of this transcendence. And at an early age, you may think, well, what happens after we die? What do we do? And many different books, many different movies have tried to depict this reality. And I wonder if that apocalyptic type genre exists because people don't want the world to end as we see it. They want the, the, the system and structure to still be in place and the, the world to be something. But what happens after we die? That's a question that we have because it's a conviction that there is more to this world than meets the eye in this present moment. And so the larger context of Ecclesiastes 3 can help us understand what this means being in Ecclesiastes 3.1. It says there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. And so he says in that verse 11 that he has made everything beautiful in its time. That is to say, God has given each phase of life its appropriate time and place, and life itself is a delicate balance of polar opposites. Each season should be viewed as a component to the entirety, because we know seasons come and go, and we know that everything in life does not truly satisfy. If you've been on that journey before, you know how much it doesn't. And so though life is full of ups and downs and uncertainties, there is one constant that we know we can hold on to. God has put eternity in the human heart. James 4 says that life is but a vapor, but we know there is something past this life. We have a divinely implanted awareness that the soul somehow lives forever. This world is not our home. And we are so consumed by this life, through our time, our schedules, our itineraries, that we are surprised when we can't go to sleep at night because our hearts are churning with this idea of eternity. I know as a young kid growing up in Sunday school asking like, okay, well, if we go to heaven when we die, like how long are we in heaven? And that word that you always hear is forever. And you think, well, how long is forever? Well, forever is just forever. Okay, but like, give me, give me like a timeline, like Michael Scott, like tell me like I'm five years old, like what does forever look like? Well, forever just looks like it never ends. And so you think like, 
wait, but what happens after it ends? But it doesn't end. And do you see the, the, the difference of how we're trying to figure out this whole thing called eternity? So this is a big question that the lawyer is asking, and he thinks that this giant cosmic question that has been asked for centuries, for millennia, is something that he actually has in the palm of his hand. And this lawyer, knowing the law, knowing the Ten Commandments, memorizing all things pertaining to the law, seemed to have been debriefed by his law firm to keep a close eye on this Jesus fellow. Because five chapters before, in Luke chapter 5, we read of different lawyers trying to stump Jesus with other questions and kind of almost stalking him a little bit, if you will. And so when this lawyer wasn't prosecuting or defending the law by day, he was also teaching the law as a priest inside the temple. So this lawyer, this teacher, is a bivocational person in the church. He holds a job inside the church and holds a job outside of the church, all pertaining to law. So everything in his life is revolved around the law. And, of course, that his sarcasm is, in fact, just that because he calls Jesus a fellow teacher of the law as well. He was the expert guide to answering the most difficult questions that people had about the legalities of culture and the practice of theology. We often see this type of form in the church and around church type things today. We often have questions about the Bible's response to a cultural paradox. How can I make sense about something in society through the lens of scripture. The interesting thing when we read in this parable is about a priest on his way home from priestly duties sees this man beaten and left for dead. And what does he do? He passed him by on the other side. It's often been said of pastors before that pastors never clock in and clock out because they're supposed to be available at any given moment. And I know that to be true because there have been times on my way home when I've been called like, hey, can you do a hospital visit? Like, oh, I think I'm busy. (laughs) Like there are moments where you can relate to this sort of feeling that the priest had when you see someone in need, whether it's a car on the side of the road or a homeless man at the off-ramp that you're sitting at and he's making eye contact with you and you're making weird eye contact with him and you're just like, well, I don't, I can't help you. And there are moments when we all experience things like that and that the priest coming home from his priestly duties is doing this. In fact, the priest inside the temple was responsible solely for the worship and for the sacrifices. He was supposed to be the people's priest. When anyone had a sacrifice, they brought their animal to him and he would either accept it or reject it in the temple. And so this priest, his entire ministry is revolving around people. And when it's not anymore inside the temple, it's as if he's not available to any people at all. So the priest, having the most prestigious of all jobs in that the common people would approach this priest as the one to be the mediator between themselves and God for the forgiveness of their sins. So in response to the lawyer's question, Jesus, of course, maybe you've been told before, what's the best way to answer a question is to ask a question yourself. Jesus asks him a question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer quotes from Deuteronomy 6, known as the Shema. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
It continues and says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And people actually did that. They had it tied around their foreheads so that it was the representation of loving God with your mind. There was a representation of loving God with your soul as it was tied around your wrists. It was loving God with all of your heart because of the door frames on your houses and on the gates of your city. So this was not just something to be recited by the children in Sunday school. This was to be a way of life. The people, when they read Deuteronomy 6, understood in that moment that there was a direct connection between obedience to the law and receiving an inheritance and life. And so remember the lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows Deuteronomy 6 because from the time of his youth, he would have been trained up on this information. It's connected to his forehead. It's attached to him at the wrist. He has the answer to his own question. And he knows there is a connection between obedience and blessing. And even further than the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, the lawyer knows the connection between the Shema and the law described in Leviticus in chapter 19, verse 18, which says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What had happened from that verse in Leviticus was that they had come to interpret the phrase, love your neighbor, in light of the previous phrase, one of your people. So they thought, well, my neighbor is just the person who shares the same skin color, the same nationality, the same village, the same whatever. And that was my neighbor. And so it constituted them knowing for a fact, so they thought, that they knew who they were supposed to love and those they didn't have to love. And we know, of course, Jesus kind of flips the script on that. In fact, um, this last week I had this very thing come to light when I was driving. The greatest sermon illustrations always come when you're driving, by the way, in case you were wondering. And so uh, last week I was driving into Riverside and we were stopped traffic like, duh, welcome to Southern California. And this guy in his car gets off to the side, like on the like where the divider is supposed to be and he cuts all these cars and he tries to get in front of me. Now see, I'm like, oh no, 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 bro. Like I know what you're doing. And if you're one of those here today and it was you, we'll, let's talk afterwards because it's stupid that people do that. I don't like that. I'm, I'm a law abiding citizen, gosh darn it. And I'm gonna make sure that you are too. Okay, but so check this out. So as he's driving up and trying to get over, I am literally inches from the bumper in front of me. Because I'm like, bro, you're not getting in front of me. This is not happening. And he keeps inching closer and closer, and I'm inching closer and closer to this bumper. And my wife's like, really? Like, come on. Like, really? Like, why? Why are you doing this? I'm like, I'm going to teach this fella a lesson because he ain't coming in front of me. This ain't happening. Not on my watch. I am the arbiter of truth. I am a mandated reporter. I don't allow things like this. And he never got in front of me. And I will clap and praise God for that. But... But I knew in the moment I was wrong. And of course, you know, he's behind me flashing his brights and like trying to get like, okay, congrats, bro. Like gets off the same exit I get off and I'm like, oh crap, like maybe he's gonna follow me or whatever. I'm very aware of my situations and stuff. And so I'm like, you know, I, I already memorized his license plate in case something does happen. Like I'm telling you, I know these things, okay? 
I know the law in and out. And, um, and then this last week on Friday night, my brother Chris over here needed to get over, and there was traffic right there off Cherry Valley. If you know that exit, there's no signals, and everyone just kind of lives their life however they want to over off that exit. And I had my wife roll down her window, and I had her do the little motion, why don't you come on in? And Chris got right on in in front of me. And I, in that moment, what did I say, Lindsay? In that moment, I was like, I, I have a sermon illustration. Because I realized what I was teaching, and I realized that I had done that exact thing. That I had seen my actual neighbor, he lives like two minutes away from me. I was like, brother, you're one of us. Come on in. Enjoy the presence of your Lord. And the other guy who was off on the other side of the lane and came in like, you're not my neighbor. You don't deserve this kind of hospitality for me today, brother. That's not going to happen. You see, we can oftentimes interpret loving your neighbor as those who are easy to love. As someone who's willing to be loved, it's very easy to do that. But of course, in determining who your neighbor was, the neighbor was someone for them in the same familiar bunch of people that you've been surrounded by, your own race, your own family, your own religion. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But now the story doesn't stop here. It never does. If you watch true crime or if you're an obsessed podcast listener, which they categorize you, right, as a crime junkie, Gabriel? Crime junkies, is that what it is? I think you're called crime junkies. I don't listen to it, but it comes on in the Bluetooth in the car and it's like, and she got away with murder. It's like, oh my gosh, because Lindsay listens to that. And so, you know, there's always a twist to the story, right? And in this moment, whether you watch CSI, Law and Order, or any of those other weird shows where the defendant thinks he's gotten away with his crime, there's this epiphany moment, the light bulb comes on, and the prosecutor thinks, how did I not see this before? And they call the most obscure witness to the stand, and the courtroom is going berserk because this guy saw something that others didn't up until this point. And this lawyer, thinking that Jesus has thrown a pitch down the middle, and now all this lawyer's got to do is hit it out of the park. Jesus' disciples may have turned their back because they were so familiar to people asking a question like this, and they already knew Jesus' response, and they would have just been like, yep, okay, Jesus is done, let's, let's get going. And they may have turned their back to the situation because they saw Jesus answer him, but as the disciples and maybe even Jesus turns their back, the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? You see, that's where the show cuts to commercial the ad plays are even worse than that. The episode ends with the three most excruciating words on your favorite show, to be continued. Don't you hate that? And the lawyer finally saw his plan come to fruition. Because remember, these lawyers have been watching Jesus' every move. Think about this. The lawyers have been watching Jesus this whole time. Back in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said these words. You've heard it said before. Right? Jesus often started with a phrase very similar to that. You've heard it said before, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And now there was a chance to attack. But of course, in Jesus's ever so comforting and compassionate response, he tells a story. Three characters, a priest, 
a Levite and a Samaritan. Sounds kind of like I'm setting up a joke. Like a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk into a bar. I don't think they ever walked into a bar together because, as you know, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They despised each other. That's why it was so That's why it was such a revelation when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well because she was a Samaritan woman. And so the disciples come up like, hey, do do you need us to get water for you? Like, do you need us to do something about this situation? I got you. And so the priest, the one who was responsible for worship and sacrifices in the temple, dismisses the man. That situation, that person, that's below me. We can get the custodian or someone to to handle that part. The Levite, who was the assistant to the regional priest, is the priest's right-hand man inside the temple. The Samaritan is the most despised people group among the Jews. And Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer replied, the one who showed mercy. Do you notice his response? He doesn't even say the Samaritan. Like he couldn't even allow it to roll off his tongue for it to even be a part of his vocabulary because he despised them so much. And what does Jesus say? You go and do likewise. Jesus is telling this person who hates this individual and these people groups, go and be like the people you hate. I mean, could you imagine in this moment, someone coming to you and presenting a case much like this and saying that it was the gay person who helped that person, but the pastor or the Levite or whatever, or it was, I don't know, whoever you want to put, whoever you can insert as someone, a Democrat. Did I just say that? Let's be honest. And then, and then Jesus is like, you go and do likewise. You're like, I ain't going to be like that, them blue people's like, no, uh-uh, no Democrats here. Like, Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. And you're like, I can't, dis- I, I can't, I can't stand those people. I hate those people. Why would Jesus tell me to be like that person? You see, this concept of love your neighbor became for them a nationalistic identity. They had joy in loving their neighbor as long as they got to determine who their neighbor was. Oh, it's easy to love your neighbor when you pick the neighbor that you want to love. But what about that neighbor who's not loving? And some of us may agree to that principle. It's easy to love the lovable. It's easy to forgive the forgivable. It's easy to honor the honorable. But what happens when that person isn't so lovable, forgivable, or honorable anymore? Do we send them to be cast out and fed to the sharks? I want nothing to do with you. Figure out your life on your own now. Friends, what good is our Christianity if we are not willing to love, to restore, to forgive, to reach those who are different, those who are living in sin, or those who are lost? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And so we have to remember from this story two things, and we'll continue on, but number one, legalism leads to a rigid gospel. Legalism leads to a rigid gospel. We say, well, that is gospel, and that is not, and this is, and that is not, and this is your neighbor, and that's not your neighbor. You see, legalism sees the law as the ultimate fulfillment. I'm doing all the right things. Great, how's that going for you? You can do all the right things and still not be a believer, You can practice following Jesus and not actually be a follower of Jesus. So legalism leads to a rigid gospel. Compassion leads to a rich gospel. 
Compassion sees love as the ultimate fulfillment. And so if we see people as an inconvenience, people will interpret the God we serve to be the same. We have to be careful to exclude people from the gospel because they sin differently than we do. We say, oh, your sin looks like that. Ooh, I don't know if we can welcome you in the church. Ooh, you, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that we can forgive you or honor you or whatever the case may be. We have to be careful to exclude people from the gospel just because their sin looks different than ours. Because here's the reality. You are not the standard. You are not the pinnacle of perfection. You are not the savior in the story. And sadly, many are looking for that narrative. I want to feel good about my relationship with Jesus. And so people tell you all the time, go and do these things and and be happy and, and practice these things. And then you'll feel fulfilled But week after week, they keep coming back emptied as if what they're looking for is not satisfying. And it's a tragedy when many are finding that in the church. You know, this season, as we know it, is known as Advent. It's the idea of waiting for something, expecting something to arrive. We're all expecting something to arrive, hopefully in the next two to three weeks, before Christmas Day, so that we don't have to tell our kids that their package is running late or tables are running late. We were supposed to have tables for our Christmas coffee yesterday, and they didn't deliver in time. So we made it work, and it worked out fine. But think about the angst that you have waiting for those packages. Or think about the angst when you're waiting for your child to be born, and your wife's water breaks, and she's freaking out, and you're freaking out, and you didn't pack the bag, and you're not sure if the hospital's going to have any room, and you're like, I don't know what to do. And then everything happened, and then boom, there's the baby, and it's just like, all right, now, here, go home with it, and like, figure it out. It's like, what? Like, I'm sorry, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense all the time. Of course, waiting and waiting, there's joy. There's an intense emotion that words cannot do justice to. You're waiting for packages to arrive at the door because you got to watch out for those porch pirates. A friend of mine recently said about this waiting game that Christmas is here, that the magic of Christmas is here. We're, we're anticipating the arrival to, of Jesus to save us and to make this world right. And the only reason we would wait for something is because we see the value of what we're waiting for. Our patience grows thin, but our joy grows thicker. Because who we are waiting for is far better than anything we could wait for here on earth. And so we have to recognize this morning that we won't see the perfect fulfillment of what Jesus promises when every tear is gone, when there's no more crying, there's no more pain or suffering. We won't see that fulfillment until Christ comes again. So what does that mean for us now? Well, it means that we live with this patient expectation that God will wrong every right, that he will put back together what is broken, that he will build what has been torn down, that he will wash clean the stain of sin and he will patch what is cracked. And it pleases God for us to not only look to the Samaritan as an example, but to love that seemingly unlovable Samaritan that the Jews could not fathom to call neighbor. Friends, you are the good Samaritan in your neighborhood. Don't let knowledge puff you up like it did for this lawyer to cause you to believe that you are not capable or that you are above people. If we lose sight that ministry equals people, then we've lost sight altogether of what God has called us to do. When we think ministry is the thing we want to be in, remember that the ministry is the people. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who do you currently consider an enemy? Who needs to be turned from an enemy 
to a neighbor? Or rather, who is the neighbor that annoys you the most? Maybe it's your neighbor that you uh, are married to, and that neighbor kind of annoys you because they take the blankets at night. By the way, you can have all the blankets you want because I can't stand blankets. Be the person when you can't stand who you're next to or when they walk in the room, you're like, oh dear, like, hey, happy face, smile, fake it till you make it sort of thing. That's not what I'm saying here. Don't fake it till you make it. It's fairly easy to be a welcoming person even if you have to put a smake fire, a fake smile. What did I say? I don't know what I said. Doesn't matter. The power of editing. Put on a fake smile, which I know none of you are doing today, right? No fake smiles in the room because you, you genuinely enjoy being here. Um, but you know the effort it can take to be in the same room with someone you despise. Now, I'm not calling you again to fake it till you make it. I'm calling you to put on the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter two, to put others before yourself. So rather than avoiding the inconvenience, accept the inconvenience. It's going to cost time and money. We see that with the Samaritan. It cost him time. He had to put the man on his own donkey, right? Imagine putting the person who's beaten left for dead on the street in your own car and like drive yourself to the hospital. Here's a couple of bucks and tell the doctors when you get to the emergency room or to urgent care that I will come back and pay for the rest of it. None of us would do that. None of us in this room would give the keys to our car to someone who's desolate and homeless or whatever and say, drive yourself to the hospital, get your things taken care of, and then when you're ready, I will come and pick you up and make sure that everything is paid for. It cost him time and money. We insist on being careful rather than full of care. We insist on being careful to consider, well, who is my neighbor? We're careful to consider, well, who am I actually going to help in this situation? Rather than just being full of care and being willing to help anyone who you come across. You see, we so often want people to experience the fullness and the freedom of Jesus. And we think, bring them here, Lord. Increase our church. But we can't forget to go out and get them. You see, we think so often, like, Lord, save more people. Lord, would they come to know the gospel? Would they come to have a relationship with you or whatever other vernacular you would use? And so often we forget that God often wants to do that work through us. You see, goodness is the main intent of this parable. In Acts chapter 10, Peter emphasized how Jesus went around doing good. And we would say, well, duh, he's Jesus. Like, of course, he's doing good because Jesus is the epitome of the good Samaritan. The challenge for each of us is to do good to those whom Jesus wants us to help. And the only way we can see the man left for dead as a neighbor is when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's been said before, we love people best when we love God the most. It's not up to us to pick and choose who our neighbors are. We do not serve a smug gospel to other people. Well, you deserve the gospel, but you don't. You can have it, but you can't. Your kids are crazy, and Jesus clearly cannot save you. Who, how, who are we to come up with that reality today? We have no, because probably they're looking at us like, I can't believe they're kids. Like, that's the whole point, is that if we are proud enough this morning to say, I can do this by myself, Remember the one thing you can't do by yourself is save yourself. 
Christ died on a cross to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You are saved by affirming Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we can learn from the Good Samaritan and love the Good Samaritan because Jesus makes it clear that he was the true neighbor. Remember that from those whom we could have expected better from passed by on the other side. And the one from whom we expected nothing, the Samaritan, was the one who manifested the compassion of Christ. We often think, pastor, go and do this thing. And the pastor's like, I don't want to do that thing. I'll be honest, there are times when I don't want to do that thing. But there are also times when we see that the people who aren't even believers, who are doing a better job of believing than we are. We often allow our perspective of who we think shouldn't fail and when they do, to lose our confidence and trust in God. Why do we evaluate what man does or doesn't do and project that onto God as if he's going to do the same? We think, well, I'm gonna watch every single Christian that I know that's around me, and as soon as they mess up, I'm going to prove why God is not worth following. Maybe we're already looking for a way out because we haven't followed Jesus all the way in. We face a task that is unfinished and it should be a sobering reality that should drive us this morning to our knees. Lord, who is my neighbor? The focus of our reflection is to see everyone as a neighbor, everyone in need and with ample opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's why I mentioned earlier about being the hands and feet of Jesus to this foster care program. It's just a simple measure of loving our neighbor as ourself. We're so good at finding a wish list for ourselves and telling others what we want for birthdays or Christmas or whatever. Let us think with ample opportunity how we can be the hands and feet of Jesus today. And of course, as the lawyer responded, well, it was the one who showed mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We know many people this morning who are in need of God's mercy. We know a lot of people who are in need of God's love. And even more than ever, obviously, during the holidays, the holidays are meant to be spent with families. But not all families will be together during this time. Not all families are created equal. And so things may not work out the way you want them to, but you know that as long as you are trusting in Christ and that you are believing that the Holy Spirit has changed your life, you can go and live in the will of God. It's as simple as that. You don't have to wonder like, well, am I, whether you're a people pleaser or whatever the case may be, we recognize that if I trust in Christ and I do good and I am loving God and loving my neighbor, then in that moment, I believe that I am truly being the hands and feet of Jesus. That is the opportunity for us here this morning to remember that. You know, when Jesus, uh, next week, we're gonna look at the prophet without honor, when Jesus goes back home, that's going to lead us right up to Christmas. It's going to lead us to a place where Jesus was not welcomed in his hometown. They didn't want to see any miracles. They didn't want to see anything performed. They didn't want to be taught to. Friends, we have a lot of people like that in our hometown, in our families, who don't want to hear, who don't want to see miracles performed, who don't want to hear about the kids' Christmas choir next week. Invite your family, by the way. Next Sunday, our kids are going to be doing a really cool uh, kids' Christmas choir. Invite family invite grandparents, they'll all come for those things and then we'll lock the doors once they're in and tell them about Jesus. That's just how things like that work. So as we consider the communion cup this morning, we recognize as 
the good Samaritan did for this desolate person, we also recognize that Jesus, a person often welcomed without honor, is oftentimes the greatest example of how to treat our neighbor when they aren't honorable, when they aren't loving, when they don't seem forgivable. Christ in his perfect love casts out fear and says, let me give you a spirit of power because the spirit of power is what is going to allow others to see the goodness of God. So the next time you see someone broken down on the road, the next time you see a homeless man with his little cardboard boxed announcement, when you see someone in need or even just out of the kindness and the generosity of your own heart, Pay for the person's groceries behind you. You're like, but what about inflation? I don't care. Like, God will provide. Pay for the person behind you's coffee. Pay for whatever you can. Like, the whole idea of pay it forward. Like, that's a great concept. And I think, like, believers should be better at that than non-believers or Starbucks, okay? Like, consider how you can, so to speak, quote, unquote, pay it forward, if you will. And as we come to the communion table this morning, we recognize how Christ went to pay it forward. You like what I did there? I wasn't even planning that. And so Jesus paying it forward for us, paid the ultimate price. As it began in the manger, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, what led to him as a man, it was the birth of a vision that gave light to everyone who was willing to turn it on. As we accept the responsibility of receiving and believing this morning, that's what we come to the communion table with. The recognition of even though Jesus had a neighbor whom he washed his feet and then a few hours later was rejected by him. With that beautiful kiss on his cheek, he was identified as Jesus Christ of Nazareth and he was arrested and beaten and crucified. He was the greatest example of someone who went beyond for his neighbor, even though he knew his neighbor didn't love him in return. Let's consider that as we pray now. Thanks for listening. At Garden City, we believe the gospel has the power to transform lives, including yours. If you want to support our ministry and the message of the gospel, you can donate at gardencitychurch.co forward slash give.